I was just making a note to myself at various points in my notes to ask for questions <laughs> so I don't forget to do that because we did speak about having this be more of a teaching session, kind of informal, which is why I've ditched the tie. So. Uh, but I do want you to feel free to ask questions or make comments if you like. So at certain points, I'll, I'll pause to do that uh, as we study the Word together tonight. Is that okay? But uh, hopefully you've brought your Bibles and we want to just study God's Word. And the whole goal of this is that at the end of the night, you'll understand better what God is saying out of the text we'll look at tonight. Uh, I want to begin by looking at a couple of verses from our text this morning. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 22. We're going to get to this in just a moment, but uh, we'll start with Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 22. <clears throat> but now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And that was the big point we were making this morning. That in order for us to be justified in God's sight, uh, to have Him declare us righteous in His sight, the only way that can happen is by us putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing else will do it. But now tonight we want to look at a little bit closer what does it mean to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why I've entitled this lesson, Saving Faith. Now, would you bow your heads with me just for a moment as we have a word of prayer, and then we'll turn our attention to our text this morning in James chapter 2. Dear God, we thank you so much for allowing us to be gathered here tonight. Thank you for the, the wonderful service we had this morning. And now we come to you again asking for your help. God, speak to us out of your word. I pray that you would be with me. Use me, dear God, to declare the truth of your word in a very clear and understandable way. And I pray, Father, that you prepare the hearts of everyone who is here, not to hear me speaking, but you speaking through me. So, God, we need you. I need you to help me to teach tonight, and your people need you to help them understand what it is that you're saying to each and every one of us out of your word. So be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. 
In the same way was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Amen. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. And this passage here has often been misunderstood. The controversy around this passage revolves around the question of whether these verses contradict the preaching of Paul, uh, the teaching of Paul. Paul taught that justification was by faith alone and that good works could in no way save a person. The point I was making this morning. Some have felt that James was advocating a doctrine of justification through good works. That is, that good works were necessary to obtain salvation. But James does not contradict Paul's teaching on the nature of salvation. He expands upon it. To, order, to understand each apostle's view, you have to understand the motivation behind each man's writing. Paul was writing to address the view that you could gain salvation by observing the law, which is what we looked at this morning, by doing good works. And so he emphasizes that we are saved by grace through faith. James, on the other hand, and James was the half-brother of Jesus, was addressing the relationship between faith and good works. Paul, too, mentions good works, but he doesn't expand upon it or explain the relationship between faith and good works. So in our text, James is not saying that a person is saved by good works, but that they will do good works if they have genuine faith. If we look at our... Go on the next one. If we look at Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, a text that we again looked at this morning, we can see that James compliments rather than contradicts Paul. Look at verse number 8. It says, It is by grace you have been saved. This grace is unmerited favor, given us what we didn't deserve. Through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is a gift from God. Both the grace and the faith are gifts from God. And verse 9, he says, not by works so that no one can boast. We can't boast in it, in our own efforts. It all comes down to God's grace. And then verse number 10 is the key verse that really links what both of these apostles are saying. He says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This 10th verse, what he's saying is that the whole goal of faith is that we would have a changed, a transformed life and begin to live a life filled with good works. This is what Paul said, and this is what James says as well. So James never says that doing good works is a prerequisite to salvation. He is saying, just as Paul does, that a person is saved by God's grace through faith, but he's also saying that if a person's faith is genuine, it will be demonstrated by good works or a transformed life. I like the way... Contemporary evangelical theologian R.C. Sproul explains it. He says, The relationship of faith and good works is one that may be distinguished but never separated. If good works do not follow from our profession of faith, it is a clear indication that we do not possess justifying faith. The Reformed formula is we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. And this is a very important uh, statement for us to consider. 
We emphasize this morning that there's nothing but faith in Jesus Christ that can save us. No good works, no deeds that we do. Not even being very religious won't do it. It's by faith, through faith alone. But it's a faith that is not alone. I want us to go back to our text here in James 2, verses 14. And try to understand better what James is saying here by following verse by verse the flow of his argument. And then later we'll look at the implications for our lives today. But before we do that, any questions about what I've said so far? Do you understand the foundation that we're starting with? Okay, that Paul emphasizes often in his writings how we are saved by grace through faith alone. That's it. Can't add anything else to that? require anything else other than that and then James comes along and actually James wrote his epistle first but you know then if you put them side by side you some people say well they're contradicting one another because James seems to be saying that good works are necessary for salvation well we're going to see tonight that that is not the case he is not contradicting Paul he's complimenting Paul by expanding upon Paul's statement in Ephesians 2 and 10 that we're created to do good works Okay, so we'll move on here and look at verse number 14. James begins with a couple of questions that introduce the subject he intends to address. He had been talking about something else up until this point in the letter, but now he turns his attention to this ideal of saving faith. And he asks two questions. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? And the implied answer to both questions is no. And then he goes on to make an argument to that effect. Verse 15. Here James presents the first of three arguments to support his view that faith without works is dead. Or that saving faith is always accompanied by a changed life. I would call what he says here in verse 15 the practical argument. In verse 15 he says, Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? It's a practical argument because he's using a practical analogy. Imagine that you were right out here on the street and you saw someone who was obviously hungry and tattered, looked like they might be homeless, and they came up to you and said, Can you help me? I haven't eaten in days. I have no place to stay. Can you help me? And you said to them, listen, I'm going to pray for you. I, I trust that you be warm and well fed and, and taken care of and God bless you. And you walk away and do nothing about their physical needs. He says, what good is that? Well, the obvious answer is it's of no good, no use at all. You know, if you just say, I hope you, you know, find some food, I hope you are well fed and didn't walk away, you've done the person no good at all. And then in verse number seven, verse 17, he says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. I think the idea that he says a brother or sister isn't to imply that this person, their, their status before God. That they are already a believer. And, and he's just using an analogy. And because he's talking to other Christians, he's saying a brother or sister. So he's saying here that if a person, you know, uh, is without clothes or daily food, or you can say they're a believer. If you don't help them practically, then you've done them no good. Well, just as you've done them no good, if a person says they have faith, but it's not demonstrated by their changed life, their good deeds, then it's of no use as well. 
So in that sense, I guess I would say it doesn't matter whether they're a believer or not. It's just a practical aspect that if anybody, whether they're a believer or not, is in need and all you say is, I hope you are well fed, I hope you find a place to live, but don't do anything to help them, then your good wishes has really not benefited them at all. And the same thing with our faith. If we say we have faith, but it's not accompanied by action, then we haven't benefited from it at all. So if a person makes a profession of faith and say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe when he died on the cross, he died for my sins. And I put my faith in him. But there's no action accompanied with that. There's no changed life. There's no good deeds coming from that. Then their profession of faith hasn't really done them any good. One of the things I often do when I go and preach somewhere is at the end of the sermon, I have a time when I ask everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes and give people a chance to respond. And I think that's very important and very helpful. But one of the things I am conscious of that it could actually uh, you know, create an impression in some people's mind that if they have at some point in a service closed their eyes and raised their hand up in the service and I say, I see that hand, that that has saved them. Because they made a profession of faith. They said, yeah, I, I want to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And they could walk out of that church and not continue to walk with the Lord at all. They can walk out of the church and have no changed life. They don't follow up on that commitment at all. But feel like because I raised my hand in that service and the minister at the front said, I see that hand, then I'm saved, I'm righteous, I can go to heaven. And what James is saying is that if a person does that, comes into a church, raises their hands up at the end of a service and then goes out and the extent of their expression of faith is that, that that's not enough. Because that's not real saving faith. Real saving faith is something much deeper than that. It involves uh, the actual us surrendering our life to God, the Holy Spirit coming to dwell within us and we are transformed our hearts and our minds, and now we begin to walk with God from that moment on. And just to slip your hands up at the end of a service or just say, I believe, and there's no other change in your life, isn't enough. So this practical argument points that out, that a person in need, if all you do is give them good wishes, but don't help them, then it's really useless. And he states emphatically that faith that isn't accompanied by works is dead or useless as well. So that's the first argument, the practical one. Let's look at another one. This one I would call the logical argument from verses 18 to 19. But someone will say, if you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And here he uses a rhetorical device that I often use as well when I speak, where you anticipate an objection or question and almost like playing devil's advocate and you uh, respond to it. So he's expecting that someone might say, well, okay, you know, you have good works. Well, I have faith. So either way is an option. And he's saying, no, that's not true. He said, I'll show you my faith by what I do. Not just saying I have faith. And then he uses another analogy, an illustration here. And that is of demons. And he says that you have faith, good. Or you believe there's one God, good. Even the demons, verse 19, believe that and shudder. And the reason I call this the logical argument is because he's saying that if faith without accompanying works is good enough, then even demons are saved. And that makes no logical sense. Because if all you need to do is give intellectual assent 
to the idea that there is one God or that Jesus Christ is the Son of God or that He died on the cross for the sins of mankind, if that's all you need to do to be saved, then demons can be saved as well because they believe that. And not only do they believe that, they shudder at that thought. Demons are absolutely convinced and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is one God and that Jesus Christ is His Son. So if a person thinks that just knowing that or giving intellectual assent to that makes them right with God, it doesn't make any sense because then demons would be saved as well because they believe that. So the practical argument, what good is it if a person says they are a saved or believe if, there's, if it's made no difference in their life? If they're bound by sin, you know, if their life is a mess, if they are still bound by all the things that they had in the past, but that they say, I've accepted Christ, what, what good has it done in their life if it's made no difference at all? He said it, it doesn't make any, any sense. It's useless. That type of faith is useless. What good is a faith that just is intellectual sense saying, yeah, I believe in a set of doctrines, or I believe in a theological or religious truth? Even demons believe that. It's got to be something more than that. And this brings us to the third of his arguments. And that's the one I would call the scriptural argument in verses 20 through 25. Now, he begins verse 20 with the phrase, you foolish man. Anybody know, notice something kind of different, or odd, or strange about that? What he says at the beginning, you foolish man. Well, if you look back at verse 14, how did he address his hearers? My brothers, yeah, what happened to my brothers? <laughs> now you foolish man. And I think what you can kind of get a sense of as he's writing this is that he's getting agitated. He's getting more and more kind of involved in his argument. He starts off really quite calm. My brothers, imagine if I had done that tonight, saying, my brothers, this is what I'm speaking on. And then by this time, I'm saying, you foolish people. <laughs> you know, you would think, well, wait a minute, come on, <laughs> what's going on? But this is what he's getting kind of really worked up over this. This is important to James. And he's making this third argument now, the scriptural argument or examples from, from scripture in the lives of some people. Uh, Abraham is the first and then Rahab. Verse 21, Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Now, we all know the story of when God comes to Abraham and tells him to take his son Isaac, the son of promise, the one that had been promised that through him all nations of the earth would be blessed, and to sacrifice him on the altar to kill him. I mean, he had waited a long time for this promise to be fulfilled, and now God is saying to give him up. Well, James is saying that you know that Abraham's faith in God was real because he stepped out on faith and acted on what God told him to do. What if Abraham had said, I'm not offering my son Isaac up. You know, God promised him to me. I love him and, and I'm not going to kill him. I'm not going to do that. Could we really say that Abraham was a man of faith? It was because he was willing to do what seemed impossible. Sacrifice his son. And scripture says that he was willing to do that because he believed that God had the power to raise him up, even if he did sacrifice him. So his actions demonstrated that the faith that he professed to have was real. It was the evidence of that faith. And Abraham was not justified by what he did alone. 
It's not just his works that justified him. It was his works demonstrating the faith that he had. And that's what he was justified. It was his faith that justified him. The works just demonstrated that his faith was real. Now verse 24 is the one that really gets people tied in knots over this passage. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Now if you take that verse in isolation... It sounds very much like he's saying that you're justified not by faith, but by works, which would contradict the rest of Scripture. But there's a principle that I learned at Bible college that has helped me quite a lot in interpreting God's word. And that is you never interpret the whole of Scripture by one verse. You interpret one verse by the whole of Scripture. So when you have a verse like this, you can't just take it out of context on its own and say this is what the Bible teaches, you've got to keep it in context and look at what the whole of Scripture has to say. And when you do that, it's very clear that what he's saying is that we're, we're saved by grace through faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. Good works always accompanies real saving faith. You know a person's faith is true, genuine, real, because of what they do. In the same way, on the natural sense, and maybe if, if uh, I were James, I would add this as the fourth argument to give. Uh, think of how uh, those of us who are married or, or um, you know, have significant others, maybe engaged or something, or have a boyfriend or girlfriend. Um, imagine how you would feel if, you know, your spouse constantly says, I love you, I love you, I love you, but their actions don't demonstrate that. You know, I've, I've known of men who for some reason seem to have a really hard time being faithful to their wife. You know, I don't know if you've ever met somebody like that, but I've had the opportunity to counsel people in that situation. And I remember one person telling me, I love my wife so much. But yet he was back in a counseling session because once again, he had been unfaithful to her. Now, how many women here think that man really loved his wife? <laughs> or think that, that, oh, that's except, you know, as long as he tells me he loves me, that's all that matters. He can sleep around all he wants, but as long as he constantly just reminds me verbally that he loves me, I'm quite happy with that. You know, I'm sure the women here would not go for that. Well, that's how many people try to live with God. Is they think as long as they verbally profess that they love him, they believe in him, they have faith in him, then how they live doesn't matter. And James is teaching tonight that that's not good enough. Our professed faith is only demonstrated to be real by the changed life that we demonstrate day by day. Then he goes on in verse 25 to use another example from scripture. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. And now with Rahab, you know the story again, where spies were sent out to Jericho uh, to kind of spy the land for the children of Israel. And it wasn't her actions alone that justified her or that saved her and her family. Her actions were just a demonstration, the evidence of the faith that she already had. Because as soon as she met them, she said, I've heard about your God. <laughs> her faith in God was already there. She believed and knew that these were God's chosen people and that God had a plan for them. 
She only expressed it or demonstrated it by her actions. And so just with like with Abraham, her faith and her actions were working together and her faith was made complete by what she did. Any any questions on that part? He closes this section in verse 26 by just restating his main point that just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And in one sense, that's another argument. What good is it to have faith that doesn't animate us as Christians, that, that doesn't influence us, that doesn't change how we live? Well, it's just as good as a corpse, a dead body without the spirit. It's just of no use, which is why when people pass away and the spirit is no longer within them, we bury them because they have no more place in this world, in this life. And if we are Christians claiming to be people of God, claiming to have the faith of God, but we don't have the spirit of God in us, then we're useless to God and to this world. Well, what are the implications for us today? Um, here are some of those for us to consider. Number one, people are saved by God's grace through faith. James doesn't change that. <laughs> He's not saying, oh, there's a new formula or you know, this idea of being saved by grace through faith is not true. No, he, James is 100% with the truth of God's word. People are saved by God's grace through faith. And as I said this morning, grace makes salvation available. Faith makes it accessible. And both are a gift from God, both the grace and the faith to believe. We are saved through faith alone. We can't add anything to that or require anything else of people for salvation. If someone were to ask any of us, what must I do to be saved? Or how do I become a Christian? It is they need to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Not even things that we believe very much in can we add to that. You can't tell a person that in order to be saved, they have to be baptized. Baptism comes after salvation. It's an outward expression of what has already happened in the heart. But baptism doesn't save people. And to say, well, if you want to be saved, you've got, you got to you know, put your faith in Jesus Christ and be baptized. No, that's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. After they're saved, they need to be baptized. But baptism is not linked with, with salvation in that way. Belief in certain doctrinal positions. There are people that say, well, in order to be saved, you've got to believe in speaking in tongues. Or you've got to believe in divine healing or this or that. Or you've got to believe with this particular group. So you've got to be a Baptist or a Methodist or a Presbyterian or a bro the brother church or whatever. That in order to be saved, you need these other people that's right. That's not what the Bible teaches. It doesn't say you've got to go to this church or that church or the other church to be saved. I mean, that may be, you know, not what we're used to hearing, but that's the truth of God's word. We are saved by grace through faith alone. Not faith, and then you've got to do these things to be saved as well. Even certain lifestyle changes. Those things come after salvation, but they do not save a person. So if I'm counseling someone, I can't say to them, well, in order to be saved, you need to stop drinking or smoking, or you need to stop fornicating, or if you're living with a partner, you need to move out of that relationship. People don't have to stop sinning to get saved. They stop sinning because they are saved. That comes afterwards through the process of sanctification and spiritual growth. But to tell somebody you need to go clean up your life first and then you can be saved. That's not what the Bible teaches. So you need to do good deeds or works or, or show that you're really trying to make a change in your life in order to be saved. Those things come afterwards. They have to be transformed in their heart. Another implication is that faith is more than just intellectual assent. 
It is a transformed heart and mind. Paul says in Romans about don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's what salvation involves. It's not just giving intellectual assent. It's not just saying I believe in something. It is something powerful. It is a fundamental change in how we view life, how we view God, our whole attitude, our desires, ambitions, our goals, all of that changes. Something happens inside. And this is what real saving faith involves. Saving faith involves more than just our head. It involves our will. We want to live for God. And then next, it matters how we live. One of the implications for us today. And this is what James is bringing out. A person who has been truly saved will demonstrate it by a changed life. Now the change may be more dramatic in some people than others. I mean, I've heard testimonies. In fact, I heard one last night at a service that I was attending. A young man from New York was giving his testimony about how he had been addicted to heroin and cocaine. And at one time had been a big drug dealer and had a lot of money. Ended up going to prison for a while. In prison, he got, well, he actually had some mental problems. So he went to like a special prison for people with um, mental uh, disorders as well. And when he got out while he was there, he met the Lord. And when he got out, he went to a discipleship training school. And for the past two years, he's been a missionary in India. And I think sometimes I hear testimonies like that, that my testimony is pretty boring. <laughs> you know, all, he, all the things he went through and the changes and stuff like that. That's amazing. I can remember as a, uh, a teenager in church hearing these people, these testimonies and thinking, maybe I need to go in the world and really have a bad life. So I have a really good testimony <laughs> when I get older, you know, but um, it, that's very dramatic. His story. The change in his life. I'm sure people who knew him before and know him now see uh, just incredible difference. But for some of us, the change hasn't been that significant. Maybe you accepted the Lord when you were six or seven. Maybe you've been in church all of your life, you know. But nonetheless, God has done a work in your heart. And you are not the person you would be if you didn't know Jesus Christ. And that's a dramatic change as well. Everyone who comes to the Lord experiences a change in their heart and their mind or transformation. It's just not as obvious uh, outwardly to everybody, depending upon what their life circumstances were. But the idea that someone can come to save in faith and know Jesus and they have not been changed at all. Their attitudes, their desires, you know, their ambitions or goals in life, nothing has changed about them. James is saying that kind of faith just doesn't cut it. That's not real saving faith. And then lastly, the goal of salvation, as Paul says in Ephesians 2 and 10, is to produce good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. God created us to live in relationship with Him. He created us in His own image so that we would, uh, our lives would characterize uh, God's nature, His character, or reflect His character. And his nature. But because of sin, you know, that image of God has been defaced in mankind. And we got off track. The goal of salvation is to bring us back and to help us to be the people that God created for us to be in the first place. To live the kind of lives that he wanted us to live when he first created man. And if a person says they have faith, but there's no evidence that that has taken place, James says, what good is it? So he says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to believe in Jesus Christ, but lives a life of sin? 
That's the question I pose to all of us today. What good is it if a person claims to be a Christian, but yet they live a life of sin? If a person professes to be a believer, but they live like a non-believer, their so-called faith is useless. In fact, it's more than useless. It's dangerous. And the reason it's dangerous is because a person like that, as long as they see themselves as already righteous before God, already saved, they'll have no desire to make any changes in their life. And they could just be in that condition until they die. At least a person who is far, far away from God, has never made a profession, knows that they're not right with God or can, can be convinced of that. I know in my ministry the hardest people to win are self-righteous people. People who feel like they're already right with God and there's nothing you or the Bible or anybody can tell them differently. Because they have made a statement of faith, a profession of faith at some point in their lives. But the challenge for us is to make sure that our lives reflect what it is we say we believe. That's what real saving faith is all about. So we are saved by God's grace through faith alone. But saving faith is a faith that's evidenced by a transformed life. Amen? Now baptism is an important part of the Christian life. It's one of the first steps of obedience. You know, part of as we've been talking about with good works and a changed life, when God saves us, we are to commit our lives to Him and walk in obedience to Him. And the first thing He asks of us is to be baptized. I'm always a bit concerned when people refuse to be baptized because it's like you say you want to follow Jesus, then the first thing He asks you to do, no, I don't want to do that, <laughs> you know. Uh, but I'm very clear to make the point though that baptism doesn't save you. It's putting your faith in Jesus Christ that does. Uh, living a good holy life or, or trying to doesn't save you. Being a good person doesn't save you. We're saved by putting our faith in Jesus alone. But if we truly believe in Him, if we truly have faith, it will be evidenced by the life that we live. Right. My dad used to use an illustration that may be helpful on this point. Um, he talked about uh, you know this guy who was one of these high wire, uh, like trespees, or what do you call them? Uh, uh, yeah, tightrope walkers. Thank you, babe. Uh, <laughs> And he walked across this tightrope, you know, maybe, you know, 40, 50 meters off the ground, off the floor. And, well, maybe bigger, higher than that, but he walked across it safely, back to the other side safely. And then he asked a large crowd gathered underneath him, how many of you think I can go across this pushing a wheelbarrow? And the crowd said, yeah, we think you could. And they encouraged him. So he got the wheelbarrow and he pushed it across this tightrope to the one side and then back to the other side. And the crowd just went, wow, wow, this man is amazing. He said, how many of you think that I can push this wheelbarrow across this tightrope with a person inside the wheelbarrow? And the crowd just went, wow, yeah, we think you can do that. Can I have a volunteer? The whole crowd went silent. <laughs> Because they didn't have that kind of faith <laughs> to believe that he could do that. They said they did, but if they really believed it, somebody would have been willing to get in that wheelbarrow and say, yeah, push me across. And that's often how people treat God. Yeah, they believe in him, but get in his wheelbarrow and let him push you across to the other side. Oh, no, thank you. I don't believe that much. And James is saying that kind of faith, a faith that doesn't empower you to move out in, in God's will and to do what he wants you to do, is a faith that is useless. 
Because the purpose God saves us for is so that we would then do the things he created us to do in this world. And if we have this faith and we say we've been saved, but we're still not you know, useful to God, then what's the point? So it's, I find this both a challenging lesson, but also a very encouraging one. Because then we can know that it is possible to have the kind of faith that is reflected in the life that we live. And we don't do this in our own strength. You know, if you've been challenged by what I've shared here tonight, the key is not to go home or leave here tonight, you know, and try to white knuckle it and say, I'm going to do all I can to, to be a better person or to live better or, you know, get closer to God and, and I'm going to try to discipline myself. Uh, that's not going to work. In fact, the harder you try, the more frustrated you may become and, and the more desperate you will become. The real secret I've learned is through surrender. It's to stop trying so hard in our own strength and surrender to God and let Him work through us. I preached a sermon uh, several weeks ago somewhere about finding freedom through surrender. And it seems like an oxymoron. How do you find freedom or liberty through surrender? Because when you think of surrender, you think of being in captivity, a bondage. And when we surrender to our own flesh, our own desires, we surrender to temptation, that's exactly what happens. We become slaves to it. We get ourselves locked up and we just, we're in bondage. But the key is not for us to fight harder in our own strength to try to break free, but surrender to God. Surrender to His will. To allow His power to work in us. And what is difficult in our own strength becomes easy in God's strength. And that's the key. When we recognize our own weakness, our own insufficiency, that we can't do it without God and surrender to Him, it just becomes a lot easier. Things that we've struggled with, strongholds in our lives, things from our past, whatever it is that keeps us from being all that God wants us to be, the, the, the victory is found in surrendering more and more and let God have more and more control of our lives. Saving faith produces that. So don't leave here today <laughs> feeling like I said, you're going to white knuckle it and try your harder to do better. Just surrender more and more to God and let Him work through you. Can I just close with a word in prayer? Dear God, thank you so much for your word and for the time that we spend here together. And thank you, dear God, for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And that is to save us from our sins. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. Thank you that you devised a plan of salvation that didn't require us to work hard in our own strength or to do this in our own efforts, but that you have given us the gift of your son. And he has borne upon himself our sin. He has paid the price for us. And all we need do is put our faith in this, uh, the, the work of Jesus Christ. And we'll find righteousness and deliverance uh, in your sight. Father, I pray that you'd help us to live in the reality of that. That in each and every one of our lives, our lives, our attitudes, our desires will reflect the faith we say that we have. So that we can be useful to you in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.